Please be seated. It's our privilege to have with us this morning, not only to uh, share his work as he did in between our services, but to share God's word with us uh, and our missionary partner, uh, Dave Kiwi. Dave, if you would come and bring the word. Thank you, Dennis. Certainly is a joy to come back and be able to worship with this family of believers who've been a part of our family for so many years through your faithful prayers and support. One of the great delights of coming back on uh, HMA, Home Ministry Assignment, is being able to worship in our PCA churches. Um, you know, when you're doing church planning, a lot of time you're dealing with a small group of people until the church starts to grow, but uh, we have just been totally blessed. I mean, we've had our socks blessed off us as we've gone to our churches worshiping with them, and uh, the Lord's really blessed the PCA with some churches that really take worship seriously. And I just want to say thank you again to all those that had a part of preparing the worship because it does take work. But when the Lord puts it all together on a Sunday morning, it is just truly honoring to him. And we have been truly blessed. So thank you so much. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 22 to 30. This is the text we're going to be looking at. So have your Bibles, open it to Luke 13, 22 to 30, and it's entitled The Narrow Door in some of our Bibles. Hear God's word. Then Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, Well, we ate and we drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are coming before you because we are so needful of the working of your Holy Spirit at this time. Lord, unless your Holy Spirit attends to the proclamation of the words, it'll just be really sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. It'll just be nothing. And Lord, if your Holy Spirit doesn't be a, uh, is not working in our hearts as we hear, then we will be like deaf people. And so, Father, we're asking for the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come even now. Move in our hearts, move in our midst, move in us, Lord. And we pray that you would be the one who speaks through this word that you have breathed out for us, that we might truly have the fullness of life. And so, Father, we are dependent upon you and ask for your blessing, for the praise and the glory of Jesus' name alone and not ours. To you be all glory and praise. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. As a boy, I grew up in a home that had a full basement to that. Now, most houses in Virginia don't have basements, but I grew up in, in the north, and we had basements under our houses. 
And this basement was divided into two rooms. The one room, the main downstairs room, was uh, the room that had the furnace in it that heated our house in the wintertime. Uh, it had my dad's workbench in one corner. It had the wash tubs and the washer and the dryer and a big freezer at another side. And that was the main basement room. But there was another room uh, just on the other side of this wall. And it was called our recreation room. And uh, it had a ping pong table in there. And it had a fireplace built on one end that was kind of cozy and homey. Um, and the thing about that I remember about this, this, this uh, room and this house is that in one corner, there was a block missing on the lower level of blocks. There was a block missing, and so you had a gap there, which was 8 inches high, 8 inches wide, and 16 inches long, which is the size of an ordinary uh, concrete block. And the, the vaguest memory I have as a little kid yet is that I could climb through that hole and get into the recreation room without having to go through the door. And, uh, as I grew older, of course, I realized I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Getting too big. And as I thought about that, you know, um, there's a lesson there. One thing we learned as we got older and as we got bigger, and big people cannot get through narrow spaces. And here in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30, Jesus, I believe, is teaching the same lesson to the people of his day. And he did it in response to a certain man who asked him a most, most interesting question here. And I want us to look this morning at the question, the answer, and then the meaning. And so that's really the, the, the way we're going to look at this passage together. Now the question is in verse 22. And the question is this, are only a few going to be saved? Now when we look at this, we often see that the narrow door of God's grace, uh, that we often, when we see this passage, I think what I want to say here is that often as Christians, we start to narrow the door of God's grace in the way that we think. We limit God's grace because uh, we don't understand how big and how wide and how deep and how high is the grace of God. Now here's the occasion for this particular parable, and I think it's always important to get the, the, the context of the text. Uh, this is Luke's gospel. Luke, of course, is different from the other gospels in that it was written by a man who was a Gentile. And uh, Luke moved around in Gentile circles. He addressed the, uh, the letter to Theophilus, a Gentile. And we see a lot of emphasis on Gentiles in the Gospel of Luke, which we don't find in the other Gospels. Um, he mentions the Gentiles uh, to whom Jesus ministered probably more than any of the other writers of the Gospels. And he records much of the criticism which Jesus leveled at the Jewish structures and traditions of his day. And I believe Jesus wanted us to realize and wanted them to realize that it's not their traditions and Judaism which saves, but rather it means belonging to the kingdom of God. And I hope that message will in many ways come true to every one of us. It's not our traditions, it's not our denominational structures that save us, but it's belonging to the kingdom of God. And this is seen in chapter 13, which begins with a question about some Galileans who were killed by Pilate. If you want to just page back there, I think you're familiar with that passage. A, a tower fell on some people, and Pilate had some uh, Galileans uh, killed. And the question was, were these people more wicked than everybody else? Is that why they were killed? That was kind of a Jewish way uh, of thinking in, in some ways. If you got sick, it was because of sin. But notice what Jesus does. He says, he told that parable, he says, unless you repent, you will all perish. And he then went on to tell a parable that says that if they repent, then they need to give evidence 
of that repentance. You see that in verse 9 of the same chapter. It's about the tree. Should they cut it down? And he says, no, if it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. And so Dr. Luke then records two more parables, that of the mustard seed and that of the yeast, both of which point to the fact that God's kingdom starts very small, but it's going to grow into something very big. And he's speaking about the expansion of the kingdom. It's going to grow from small beginnings. And then now, verse 22, the passage that we're starting to look at, Jesus is now beginning his final journey to Jerusalem. It says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, making his way to Jerusalem. Back in 951, it says, Jesus set his sights to go to Jerusalem. This was his final journey. He knew he was going to his death. And so this is an important part to factor in as Jesus is giving this parable. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die. It says here, as he went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem, someone pops this question to him. Someone asked him, verse 23. Now, we don't know who it was. We're not told. Whether it was a disciple, whether it was a villager, whether it was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were around, as verse 31 would indicate. But the question that he asked has to do with the subject of salvation. Notice what he says. Uh, you know, he, what he says here is, may, uh, excuse me, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Salvation. That's a loaded question for a Jew, but it was back then. Because for the Jewish mindset, salvation meant deliverance from their enemies, deliverance from the Romans, deliverance from anybody else who tr- tried to oppress them, who tried to control them. For some Jews, it had moral implications. They understood that salvation meant salvation from sin, from their moral pollution, from a corrupt society. Evil was the real enemy of the society. Some Jews saw these two ideas connected, that only when you had the Messiah's kingdom would sin totally be eradicated, and their enemies as well. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism, Some were anticipating a messianic announcement. They had seen the power of this man. They had seen 5,000 people fed. They had seen people raised from the dead. They knew what Jesus could do. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the question is a big one. Will only a few be saved? It's interesting, verse 31, the Pharisees actually warn Jesus at this point and say, Herod's out to kill you. We know later the Pharisees played an important part in his death. But some were not yet eager for his death, and they thought maybe he was the answer. And so they're kind of edging him on. And they address him as Lord. And the question is, will only a few be saved? That's the question. Now, why would a Jew think only a few would be saved? Many Jews believed that all Jews would be saved in the Messiah's kingdom. It was automatic if you were Jewish. There was another Jewish tradition that said only a few Jews would be saved because when you look back at their history, only Joshua and Caleb of the original group that came out of Israel, out of Egypt, were able to get in. So there were some that said, yeah, it might not be the numbers we're thinking about. Now this is Jesus' final year of ministry. And it's no longer the year of popularity. He doesn't have the 5,000 people, you know, that were on the hillside being fed by him. He doesn't have 5,000 people following anymore. So this is his final year of ministry, and he doesn't have that popularity. In fact, again, uh, Bible scholars say this is a year of opposition. And he's making his way to Jerusalem, teaching as he goes, but the huge crowds are starting to dwindle. In fact, 
much of the Jewish establishment did oppose him. And Jesus' teaching about the mustard seed, about small beginnings of the kingdom, and the two parables may have prompted this question, are only a few going to be saved? Notice, they didn't see the results. They didn't see the large crowds. If Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he better get a big following because he's got a big task ahead of him. And they didn't see that. I suppose the punters wouldn't think Jesus had the numbers to pull it off. You see, the nature of this question reveals that this person asking the question in one sense had no real faith in Jesus as who he really was, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God in the flesh. And so the nature of the question reveals that about the questioner. I don't think he'd listen to Jesus' teaching. And I would say he had a limited view of God's grace. And because he had a limited view of God's grace, he had a limited view, a limited faith. But you know, I, as I was studying this passage, I was thinking, how often aren't we just like that person who asked the question? We don't see the results. We don't see the church really popular. It's somewhat in demise, somewhat ignored. We see a lot of evil in our society. Church is not making the impact it ought to make. We see Christianity so little affecting our own lives sometimes. We seem so defeated by sin. Or we go knocking on doors and we get such little response from people. Or we try to witness to them at work and they don't want to listen. And people we used to know, friends we used to know, are now getting into the new atheism. Actually denying the things that were precious to them once. We see the religions of the world increasing in power and strength. We see the threat of Islam. We see superstitions, astrology, ancient pagan religions being revived. And we start to shrink in our faith and the question comes to our mind, Lord, where are you? Are only a few going to be saved? Where's this great victory we've been promised? And then we remember, oh yes, there's a remnant. Just the elect. And we start to hide our light under the bushel because we're a part of that little group and they don't want to hear us anymore so we slip our Bible back into our pocket. And we're intimidated. Though Jesus knew all who were given to him by the Father, he still went preaching and he went teaching wherever he had the opportunity. He wasn't intimidated by the numbers or the lack of them. He was not irresponsible. He did not hide behind the sovereignty of God. He did not hide behind the narrow door. Though Jesus was on his way to die, he still taught the people. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus went to them and he went to where they were, in the places where they were, and he kept preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel with these people. You know, if our doctrine makes us idle in the task of the Great Commission, then I don't think we've really grasped it. And if our gospel is not penetrating into the villages and the lives of society in our own life, I don't think we've understood the greatness of God's grace. And we still have a task before us. Sometimes I think those of us who believe in limited atonement hide behind the doctrine of limited atonement to where it doesn't impact us in evangelism. And so I say, let us not limit the grace of God and so limit our faith in the God of all grace. It is our responsibility to sow the seed wherever we can. And so we don't ever want to hide behind the idea of the narrow door. Why? Here's the answer. We've had the question, will only a few be saved? Now we have the answer. 
And the answer is this, God opens wide the narrow door. Now, if someone said to you, are only a few going to be saved, what would you say, yes or no? Many see this as a uh, speculative theological question. Tell us the number of the elect. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, years ago, the JW said 144,000, and as their numbers passed 144,000, they had to come up with a new interpretation. I was looking on uh, the internet, and I found that there's one organization that says since the time of Jesus, there are 8,344,000,000 people who have become Christians. How they got those numbers, I have no idea. <laughs> I think they're speculating there. But the fact is, Jesus answers this question with a parable. So when the man says, are only a few going to be saved, Jesus tells this parable about the door. He says, our salvation is equated with the idea of entering into the kingdom of God. And Jesus saw two categories. Either you are in the kingdom of God or you are outside of the kingdom of God. To be in the kingdom of God, of course, means fellowship with God, salvation from God, a friend of God. To be outside of the kingdom is very serious. Now, what determines whether you are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, inside or outside? The answer is the door. You're either inside or outside, right? The door serves the purpose of delineating an area. It sets apart a room from a hallway. It is a passageway that we must go through to get from one location to another. There's no little concrete block that you can slide through. You have to go through a door. And you're either inside or outside. Now Jesus says here in verses 28 and 29, look with me at verses 28 and 29, he says, There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, though there is a narrow door, that door is open wide to people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues. The door is open to all people to come. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's the patriarchs of Judaism. There are many Jewish people that are in the kingdom of God. Christianity had its roots in Judaism. And he says, all of the prophets, many of those were later rejected by the Jewish people, as we know. They stoned the prophets. But then, verse 29, Jesus says, they're going to come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Those people are going to be a part of the kingdom as well. So though the door is narrow, it's wide open. And so, yes, Jesus is calling people from many different places within the world. He's calling people from France, even today. He's calling people uh, from Spain, even today. He's calling people uh, from Williamsburg, even today, and from Japan, and from the Middle East, and from Chile, and from Canada, and from Kenya, from Australia. God is still calling people into his kingdom from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And you know what? He may very well be calling people that live to your right and to your left and across the street and behind you because he's drawing people from all parts of the world into his kingdom. The Bible says there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And so let us never narrow down our perspective and our faith in the God who saves. Here's the picture of the New Testament church alongside the Old Testament church feasting at the banquet of God together as one people. I think it is amazing that Jesus gave us a feast to remember this all the time. 
that we are one because of him. And everything that's symbolized in the Lord's table is a declaration of this truth, that we will feast in the kingdom of God someday as well. And so here is a victory celebration, communion under the rule of God, not limited to Jews only, but to open to people from all points of the globe. But now there's something interesting. Look at verse 24. Jesus said, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to enter. While the door is wide open, Jesus says, we still have to make an effort to enter into that door. That's an important task given to everyone who would be saved. Here's a responsibility that means effort and energy and concentration and examination. This word in the original is the word agonize. Later in Hebrews 12, Paul talks about if we're going to run the race, we have to agonize. Same word. And Jesus says, agonize, make sure that you are in the door. Now, is Jesus teaching salvation by works? No, no, no. The Bible says, for by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But salvation by grace, people of God, listen, salvation by grace... It's always working. It is always striving. It is always agonizing. Salvation by grace is never a passive grace. Salvation by grace works out salvation to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it is doing that because it is God who is working out in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So salvation by grace makes every effort to add to faith, but salvation by grace wants to make one's election and calling sure. But salvation by grace requires effort so that we realize that we're saved not by effort, but by the work of Christ and his efforts and what he did on Calvary's cross for us. That's the whole point. We've got to get that so clear in our minds that we labor because he did all the work for us. And so our response is a God-given response of thank you, Praise be to God. I really believe you did this for me, Jesus, and I'm going to show it by laboring in every way that I can for the kingdom of God. Not because I'm trying to earn it, but because Jesus earned it, and it's my show of respect and thank you to him. Listen, Jesus declared himself to be the door. He's the only way of entry into the kingdom, and that door is narrow. There's not many ways, but one way. And Jesus declared himself to be that way, and so either you're in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. You're in Christ or not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you're still lost in your sins. But here's the point. Look at verse 34. Jesus opens the door. It's been opened. The door is open. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus says, he who comes to me, I'll no wise cast out. And so Jesus' arms are open. Some of you that are my age might remember when we were kids, we were taught a song in Bible school, Sunday school. One door, only one. Yet its sides are two, inside, outside. On which side are you? That's really the question that we have to ask ourselves. Are we in the door or are we still outside the door? You can't be in the door until you come to the door and go through the door. You have to go through Jesus Christ and his righteousness, trusting in him for your salvation. And that is the message that we have to proclaim to people. It's not by our works, but it's by Christ's work. 
And we are to make every effort to enter in because Christ has done it all. And so what Jesus is saying this, your being a Christian cannot be a secondary matter to you. Being a Christian has to consume our whole life. What we eat, what we drink, where we go, what we see, how we treat one another, how we do our job, all of that should be in one way or another focused and conditioned by this true fact that I belong to Jesus Christ and I'm a child of the King and therefore I'm going to serve him no matter what task you're given to do. For you see, salvation by grace is not a passive faith. It works out the salvation that God is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So are you in the door? Jesus opens his arms as verse 34 says, the door is open. So what is Jesus saying here? Don't ever think it's a secondary matter. You can just cruise. No, we keep on keeping on till the day the Lord calls us home. And as we get older and we're not able to do the things we used to do, there's other things we can do. I thank the Lord that through the years of being supported by people and visiting churches, time and again we have met elderly people. They're pretty much um, limited in what they do, but they're praying all the time. I remember three ladies, their names all started with M, up in a church in Pennsylvania. They were all elderly ladies. This was many years ago. And they showed me a scrapbook, and they had every one of the empty, back then it was the uh, uh, RPCES, every one of the Mission to the World missionaries in there, and they daily would pray through those missionaries. They were still doing the work of the kingdom where God had put them. You know, Jesus told a, tra- a parable once about a man who found a treasure in a field. Remember what he did? He went and sold everything he had so he could buy that field in order to have that treasure. That is what God wants us to do in terms of the kingdom. It is the most important thing we have. And it could consume us. You know, when you think of the Olympics, those Olympians never get where they are because of only a workout on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. They agonize for years and years. They agonize, that's the word, to get where they are. And yet I think so often people who call themselves Christians are satisfied with a Sunday morning workout of one hour and maybe 30 minutes of it is sleeping. You know which 30 minutes. You see, if our Christianity is not foremost in our lives, then we may, you know, we may not really be in the door because Jesus says it's got to consume us. Charles Spurgeon said, let salvation be the grand business of your life. And so in the final part, there's a warning. This wide open door is narrow. Instead of answering the man's question directly about how many will be saved, Jesus says, you need to concern yourself with how to be saved. And he said, make every effort, and here is why. So that we will know that it's not by our efforts. Not all who try to enter will be able, verse 24 says. And Jesus says, many will try to enter and will not be able. This is one of Jesus' most sobering statements in Scripture, is it not? Jesus talking to this person who just asked him that question. He's addressing the people of his own generation, these Jewish people who were following him when things looked good, but as soon as things got bad, they wandered off. And Jesus says, many, many, not few, but many, a multitude. Look at verse 25. They will be knocking. They will be pleading. They're serious. They want to enter, but they're left out. Notice verse 26. We ate and we drank with you. Here's people that had intimate contact with Jesus. And they may have very well been part of the apostolic band for a time. 
They said, we heard you teaching in the streets. They had God's word at their disposal. They never overtly rejected Jesus. They're familiar with religion. But Jesus says they will not be able to enter. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And someone may ask, why not? Doesn't Jesus say, whoever comes to him, he will no eyes cast out? Yes, he says that. Doesn't he say, knock and it will be open to you? Yes, he says that. But there's a limited time for the knocking and for the asking. And there are people who have, in a sense, squandered away the day of grace because they kept thinking, I'll do it later. I'll take care of this matter later. I want to have my fun now. And they kept putting it off. And soon the Spirit of God is no longer disturbing them. So there's a limited time for the open door. You know, in ancient times when you had a formal banquet, you had the invitation, and you had to be there at the time the door was open. And once the door was closed, and it was the master of the house who came and closed the door, you were out. There was no way you could get back in. That was protocol. That was custom of the day. And that's what Jesus is illustrating here. So the door is open for a limited time. And that's what happened with these people. And so Jesus is saying to his listeners, and he's saying to us, we can be very religious, but still outside the door. Jesus will say, I don't know you away from me. I don't know you or where you came from. Isn't that interesting? That's why the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so if you're not in the kingdom, make sure today. If you're not in the kingdom, make it your number one priority, your main business, to be sure that you are. Because the wide open door has a limited opening space. And so there's a limited time, a limited space. It's narrow. And that door is so narrow. Do you know what it means? It means that when you come to that door, you cannot walk through that door holding on to your church membership certificate and think, this is the reason I'm going through the door. When you come to the door, you can't bring out your baptism certificate and say, I was baptized. I was a member of such and such a church. Those things cannot go through the door with you. When you come to the door, you can't say, but I witnessed to so many people and I was so faithful in a church and I got all of these Sunday school medals for being a faithful attender of Sunday school. You can't take any of that with you. Basically, when you come to the door, you jettison everything you have and you hold on to Jesus, the door himself who brings us through into the kingdom. And my friend, that is what it means to be in Christ. You come to the place where you are not standing in yourself. You are empty of self. You are empty of all self-righteousness, all ideas of what you have done. And you are clinging to Jesus and his righteousness. And dear people of God, this is what this communion is all about. It is declaring that we are saved because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because the blood was shed for us. He gave his life so we can have the life-giving blood flowing through us. He broke his body. He gave his body. He gave up his life so that we don't have to die eternally, but we can have everlasting life through him who loved us and gave himself for us. And so this is the message Jesus says, those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. The Jews who were the firstborn missed out. The Gentiles who came last have been included. But the kingdom of God will have Jews and Gentiles, all those who are trusting in God for their righteousness and not in themselves. The whole system of the Old Testament was to say to the Jew, you need a sacrifice. You need the lamb. You need Jesus. And so God wants us to come empty-handed when we come to that door. 
I read the story about a man who lived in history. His name was Renald III in the 14th century. He was a duke in what is now Belgium. This man was grossly overweight. He was commonly called by a Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. He had a violent quarrel with his brother, his younger brother, Edward, and Edward led a successful revolt against him. He captured Renald, but he did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Renald in the new Kirk Castle. And he promised his brother that he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave that room. Now, that would not have been difficult for most people because the room had several windows. It had a door of nearly normal size. Nothing was locked or barred. But the problem was Renault's size. He was too big. And each day, his brother would send a variety of all of these delicious foods. And instead of getting thinner, he just got fatter. Now, when Duke Edward was accused of being cruel, he had a ready answer. He says, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. Do you know that Renald stayed in that room for over 10 years, and it wasn't until his brother Edward died that he was released. But he soon was in such bad health, he died within a year of taking the throne again. Listen, my friend, the parable of the narrow door is really an invitation. And right now, that door is open to everyone. Every time they hear the gospel, the answer is the door is open. Come to Jesus. Come to him for your righteousness. Come to him for your salvation. Rest in him alone. In fact, Jesus commands us to come. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But we have to come empty-handed. We can't keep carrying our sins. We've got to jettison them. We have to turn from them. We have to turn to Jesus. And we also have to leave behind all of our self-righteousness and cling to Jesus alone. Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. As we come to the table this morning, I hope we will focus on the wonder what Jesus has done for us, that he is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if anyone is in this church worship service this morning who has never truly run to Jesus for salvation, that today would be that day for them. And Father, I pray for every one of us as Christians. So often, Lord, we start to get frustrated. We start to focus on our circumstances. We start to focus on ourselves too much. And Lord, we need to keep the focus always on Jesus, who is our righteousness. And Lord, I pray that this morning, perhaps you might even be calling people to turn from self and to turn to Jesus. Father, we ask that you would continue to prosper the proclamation of the gospel to the nations of the world. We pray you would bless of all, all these missionaries that uh, Grace Covenant is supporting and bless them to be faithful where they are to go with the gospel. But Lord, it's not the missionaries. It's every one of us who are your children. We are missionaries. And Lord, you call us to go. And so, Father, as we come to the table, may it be a time of recommitment and renewing ourselves to be fully yielded to you, trusting only in Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's through his name we ask this prayer. Amen.